on today's podcast, I am excited and also feeling very thankful to have Alana Friedman from Friedman White Architects here with me today. Welcome, Alana. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, and thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to start the discussion. So, Alana, you're no stranger to the Think Brick Awards, or as it seems, masonry. And I just think if I remember one of your first projects that was the one you won for, the Kevin Ball and Masonry Award for Hoddle House, I think we started to realise back then just exactly the impact of Instagram and how people were looking at a look or a feel and that texture. And we knew that people were going to our members and saying, you know, they wanted this particular brick or this particular texture. And I think I have you to thank for that. And then we really started saying to our members, you know, visually this is so important, as not only for architects but for architects to, I guess, showcase to their clients and to the, to the homeowners what things would look like. So it's been a long journey with you and Brick. We've been so fortunate to be part of the Think Brick Awards program and to have won the Kevin Ball and Masonry Award twice now. So the Hoddle House was in 2016. It was one of our early houses. I think it was Claire Cousins who was on the jury that year who described the brickwork as velvety. And we'd used this concrete masonry brick and it was the ebony brick which is a dark brick and what we'd done is we'd applied just a stain across the top of it to make sure that there wasn't any moisture that that went through the brick over the years and what that did was it created this sheen to the brickwork that really got picked up in real life it takes on really different textures throughout the journey of the day and how the light hits the brickwork and that was captured, as you say, in the photography that Jeremy Wright took for us. And I think that people were able to relate to that. And as you say, sometimes it's difficult for people who are looking to use these bricks in this sort of context to visualise how it will react to light and how it will react to different facades, whether it's on the east and the west and against apertures, against timber, against different materiality and how that will be portrayed in the end product. And so, as you say, I think that a lot of people were looking at our Instagram account and also Think Brick Instagram account for those images across the years to see how the finished product shows the masonry brick that we were able to use on that project. And it's, you know, I think with Rachel Nolan and Patrick Kennedy, you know, they did a lovely uh, talk for us to our board around just how much social media has really, without sounding like a motherhood statement, changed the landscape. But it has because now there's this real, I guess, attachment or engagement from the very start of a project to how that project evolves. And then again, the finished project, but then also as you're saying, how that project looks in different lights or can be perceived in different times. But before we go sort of into a little bit about what you're currently doing, I wonder whether we could just take a little step back and if I could ask you, why architecture? How did you get that calling? (laughs) I feel like architecture is so unique Um, and has so many facets to it. And I think it's very difficult for people to start to reflect and think about 
how we ended up on this amazing journey. But if I think a little bit back to my childhood per se, and I was very fortunate to be exposed to some amazing architectural pieces. I think it was very subconscious. My family definitely didn't try and um, push me down this line by any stretch of the imagination. But my father was fortunate to have grown up in a Kevin Boland house. So, yeah, so, yeah, so Kevin Boland designed the Friedman House in 1965. And so when I was younger, my grandparents still owned the house and we frequently visited them. It was in Mount Eliza, so it wasn't, it wasn't an everyday thing, but it was, it was pretty frequent. And I just have very distinct memories of how unique that house was and I was I was pretty young. They sold it when I was quite young, but I still recall some really key moments of that house. There was this huge tree trunk in the that anchored the dining room, and as a child, it was just so different about how you, as a family, as you sat around the dining table and how you engaged with that, which was a column, but you know how you engaged with that, and the ceiling was a thatched ceiling and. I just remember thinking, you know, how unique that was and the views. It was it was on a very steep block and so there was a veranda at the rear of the property and you were at basically at the treetops when you were sitting outside. And so just all those kind of moments and, and memories of, of family and living um, around architecture. But, you know, I think that really these things just sort of sit with you in your subconscious it wasn't something that you know was a direct lineage per se and and i'm Uh. just curious as to how did your parents describe that because you're right i think you know growing up we just didn't know many architects for myself yeah and it always seemed to be that little bit of an obscure profession that was a niche sort of thing but i wondered how did your parents introduce that how did they introduce that to you well, my mum particularly is very artistic and has always been very creative in her in her way of speaking to us as children. And I think that she would have very much sparked the conversation, not so much as in relation to, oh, this is Kevin Boland and this is, you know, this is an architecturally designed house, more so in relation to how as children we respond to these things so she would have she would have sparked conversations about you know oh you know why do you think they've done that or you know how is this different to our house or you know those types of questions that spur on a child's imagination and creativity and understanding of what space is but on a level that a child can understand of course yeah and thinking back to that time what was your sort of perception of space I think the perception of space is, as a child, I think you start to just to understand differences more than anything. So another very early childhood memory of space was I was taken to the NGV on a regular basis to do, I don't know if anyone remembers Artie Mouse, there was a holiday program for children and you'd follow this man who was dressed up in a in a mouse costume around the gallery and, and you were asked to draw, you know, or, or represent in your own way a different piece of art and I don't remember any of the art. I don't remember what I drew or, or what we were asked to look at. All I remember is how we circulated around 
the NGV and at that time it hadn't been it didn't have the alterations and so I I distinctly remember looking down into the courtyard and and how you circulate around those spaces so I think it was those moments that take you to a space that you know again you don't know is architecturally designed but you just know there's something different about it and you start to realize that it it sparks your own creativity as a child and your own imagination in a different way than perhaps your suburban house <laughs> does. And then in that creativity, did you express that sort of bite through drawing or did you sort of attempt to build things? How did you express that when you were growing up? Yeah, I'm definitely more less about drawing and more about, as you say, making things and putting things together in an unusual ways. And uh, I did, yeah, I did a lot of art with my mother, as I mentioned, that she was very creative. My my sister's actually has become an artist, so there's a lot of influence through the household. But I think it was more, uh, I wasn't so much the drawer. My sister was more of a drawer. I was more of a creative thinker and more of a, a, a lateral thinker. And as you say, maker, I, I did a lot of pottery and things like that growing up. So you're, you've moved from there. How did you sort of, I guess, make that choice to go and study architecture a little bit later was it a conscious thing I think it was it was suggested to me because which I think is possibly quite a familiar story for a lot of architects that there was a creative side to me and a mathematical side and people put that together and and suggest architecture when I started the course as as I think a lot of architects do start the course not really understanding what architecture is or what the role architecture has to play within our cities and just learning that through throughout the course and understanding more and more how architecture has significance and, and how we can contribute to, to our cities. Before you started the course, you mentioned that there were a few sort of architects that had impressed on you, obviously Kevin Borland being one of them. Was mm. Were there any others? No, I really had very limited exposure to architectural houses or design per se. I mean, grounds would have been an influence through the NGV, but I don't think I would have even known grounds' name when I was starting the course. While you were going through, did you, with this whole new world opening up or an explanation of it, was there anything that stood out for you during that time? I think that it really resonated with me very early on that I understood that this was a skill set that I had or that I could you know that I could grow because it was this way of thinking about how to put things together that like we spoke about earlier in a creative way and impressing on people a different experience of space and I think that that really resonated with me very early on in the course. And so you finished the course and where do you go? What's one of your first jobs, so to speak? I was working at O'Connor and Hall as a student and then I stayed there very briefly as a graduate. It was right when the GFC, I graduated when the GFC hit, which was Great not, timing. Yeah, <laughs> not very useful to launch a career. But so I... I managed to get an opportunity through my tutors uh, to, to work at 
a firm which is CHT, which they were starting up a design sector of their company and they they brought me and another friend of mine into the company to try and propel some of their projects that they wanted to have a bit more recognition in the, in the design field within architecture. It was a great first job in the sense that we got a lot of exposure to all facets of architecture and a lot of freedom to design and to play and to test and just test again. So I do have a lot of a lot to thank for that opportunity in relation to just exposure as I said to clients to different corporate bodies to presentations and just also how to get a project off the ground speaking to developers doing feasibilities all that nitty-gritty stuff that no one likes to talk about but that's really how a project gets off the ground it's not um, the sexy stuff it's always no <laughs> it's really not the sexy stuff but it's useful to know when you're speaking to clients and then yeah. how did you and, and Michael come come to meet and, and decide to go out on your own? So Michael and I have been together since third year uni, so very young. We were 21 <laughs> when we got together. I did impress on you in that time. It was Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Sorry. I forgot about you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been a long journey for us. We uh, we did a lot of work together as students, so we already had that rapport. Not commercial work. I mean, our own academic work. We would already bounce off each other through the later years of architecture, and then we went our own ways in terms of different exposure and different jobs when we graduated, and then we we had an opportunity to build four townhouses in North Melbourne and we were very young and very green but we we took it we took it on which I sort of look back on and makes my stomach churn but we somehow (laughs) did it (laughs) and we were both doing that whilst working full-time and then yeah and then it it got to size and one of us had to say goodbye to our jobs it was just too much and so Michael was the one who took on the project full time from that point and essentially started Freedom White from there. And I continued working for I think another year and a half. I actually went, we decided that it was time for me to be full time at, at Freedom White when I was seven months pregnant with our first job. Perfect timing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was all very well considered and and thought out. I think so. I heard someone say the other day that, you know, like when everything's going really well and you're just about to make a breakthrough, you either get pregnant, get a puppy yeah. or start a renovation. <laughs> it's completely <laughs> like that. It's totally true. And even now, just trying to say to friends or even sort of team members, you know, there's never a good time to have a baby. You're never prepared yeah, for uh, it. No, you're never prepared for it. And I just think you just have to do it because if you try and find the right time, you'll never have a baby. <laughs> it's also true. And how do you and Michael complement each other? Because, I mean, I think it's such a big thing and it, from what I've observed, it's common in architecture that, that you know, partners work together and also are together. How do you yeah. complement each other? Yeah, I think we were really fortunate 
to find each other in that respect because I think that we we're very aligned aesthetically and in terms of morals and ambitions and ethos very aligned in that respect but then how we interact with people how we work is very different Michael's father was a diplomat so he's he's much more diplomatic and and level-headed and calm cool and collected all the time I'm much more fiery with my European background so and I think that sometimes you need a bit of both you know sometimes you need someone to go in there and just say it how it is and fight the fight and then you need someone else to sort of smooth it over and and do that and just because you've mentioned it what is your European background I'm Jewish Australian but my my grandparents not I was speaking about my father's parents previously but this is my mother's parents my grandmother was Czechoslovakian and my grandfather's Polish oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah and so there's you... no there's no talking at the dinner table that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about how you work together I mean do you stay in those in those kind of roles and then just alternate who comes out at what time basically yeah and it's not necessarily so mapped out it's more just I guess I guess if you if you really look at it, I do the majority of the client liaison and and the day to day sort of workings of, of the company and then Michael's very much key design architect within the firm and and does does that a lot of the time. But we're both across both sides as well, having said that. We we bounce ideas and, and different ways of responding to briefs together in terms of design and then we also Michael will be very much um, speaking to clients as well. Is there a time where work discussion stops or does everything bleed into each other? Everything bleeds into each other. When our daughter was you know when one of her first sayings she must have been I, I don't know 18 months around that she used to say no buildings no buildings which meant stop talking about architecture. <laughs> Just thinking back to that that first project and that also was a um, finalist in the Horbury Hunt Residential Awards, the townhouses. Yes. What, what did you learn? Were, were there some defining things you learned during that time working together and that being the sort of first project that you did by yourselves? Yeah, that was the biggest learning curve I think we've ever had, really. We took that from you know, first-hand sketches right through to practical completion on our own turf, you know, with no one to fall back on and, and no questions. We, we had, you know, I shouldn't say that, we had different mentors within the industry that we, we could ask, but essentially the buck stopped with us. And so that was a big learning curve in terms of negotiating different people throughout the project whether it be the client or the builder or the planners or or the end purchaser for example and as you say I think that that was really the beginnings of of how the company works today even in terms of different roles or or how Michael and I work together in that commercial sense. Did you get to the end of that and think maybe we shouldn't do this anymore? We had our moments. That project was 
difficult because we had arranged with the client that we wouldn't take any fees and that we would buy one of the townhouses at a discounted rate in oh, order wow. in order to get our first home because it was difficult to to it still is difficult to buy your first home so we wanted to try and work out a way to purchase one of those without having any money so that put extra pressure obviously because we didn't have any much income stream and we were trying to work and complete the project what a great solution though yeah architects could come up with I would imagine it is a bit like that I think that that's something that Michael and I do very well is be resourceful and try and work out the best of a of a situation whether it be for ourselves or on site for a client I think we're very resourceful in that way we never we never feel stumped we've come across all different things as most architects do throughout their professions and I think that that is one of our strengths that we just you know sit down together and and work out a way through it and I just wondered how much did that impact the design because from now what I'm learning is you're you're designing townhouses but you're also going to live in one of them did that impact how things unfolded somewhat but the unfortunate truth of it was that we were never sure if we would be able to afford it throughout the project because even though we had that discount it was still going to be a significant buy-in and so we always had to make sure that if we couldn't purchase it it could go to market and so we couldn't tailor it to any significant in any significant way that would isolate a purchaser so i think that we we did consider it i think that there are some beautiful moments in that townhouse that we had conceived in the sense that we'd be happy to live there but at the same time, I think we approach all our projects in that way, mm. that we would always be happy to live in any of our developments or any of our projects because that's just the way we would like to design. <laughs> did, did you end up living there? Yeah, we did. We actually literally just moved out. So we'd been there for seven years. We had both children in that townhouse. And when you said, had we designed it, for our own use. We designed it before we had children and I wouldn't suggest living in a four-storey townhouse with two children or babies for that matter, which we learnt very quickly. Walking up the stairs pregnant is always not the funnest thing to do. Hindsight's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So just, I guess, because that's where we saw your first relationship with Brick. Why Brick? What is it about Brick? As you can see through our projects, we just absolutely love Brick. And one of the key reasons is that we like using materials, whether it's externally or internally, that are durable, resilient, and that mark the test of time. And Brick absolutely does that, ticks every box in terms of so low maintenance it is durable and it just looks beautiful it gets better with age if anything and I think being a homeowner of one of those townhouses I mean there was so little maintenance that had to be actually no maintenance that had to be done to that facade Mm. the bricks just really still 
look as good as they did the day that they were constructed. It, did you take any inspiration from brick buildings, you know, before this time? So the townhouses, I think, would be hard to argue that they didn't, um, they came out of a trip to Europe and Amsterdam. Michael was doing a PhD through Monash and he was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to do a tour of housing through Europe. And I think there was a lot of influence of that trip within the Lothian Street townhouses and the brick buildings that you see through those those countries. From when you started to now working many times over, is there anything that continues to surprise you about brick? Absolutely. I think if you look at our most recent brick project, which is the Napier Street Apartments mm-hmm. Familiar, we've again used the concrete brick from Adbury and asked the builder to saw 10 millimetres off the face of, I think it was 30% of the bricks and peppered them around this the facade. And even though we, we felt as though that would create a beautiful texture because you expose the aggregate mm. and, and against the standard concrete block to show the difference in texture, when it actually was finished and you see that subtle shift of texture and the way the light reflects off the aggregate within the block and just the, even the way that you can see the the saw cuts, the circular saw cuts on the brick, I think that it just took it to a whole level beyond what we could even have conceived. The brick just has a life of its own. It just surprises us every time. It just is able to take an idea and enhance even our own ideas to the next level. And when you're explaining to manufacturers or even the builder your ideas... I get this a lot. Do people get yeah. nuts? I mean, do, is there yeah. a resistance there? Absolutely. And you get all the, you know, I'm sure you get it as well. You get all the, oh, the brick's going to crack. It's going to crumble. You can never do that. What, you know, what are you thinking? Like a million and one problems about what's going to happen to the brick, which never happens and it's all fine. <laughs> and, you know, just looking at Napier Street I mean you've used obviously the brick sort of hit and miss screens and and then you've created that beautiful texture as well and were these because if I look at I guess the evolution of some of your designs are there some sort of things that you think I really want to try that embellishment in our next project how does that sort of Uh, I think it's more the project speaking to us. So if you look at the hit and miss brickwork, it's used deliberately against bedrooms as a screening device and as a privacy screen. So the facade has different articulations. Some of the glazing is much more open and some of it has this hit and miss brickwork against it. And it's to do with the programming. And so Napier Street is quite a busy street and there's a lot of pedestrians and so you want to just allow the person to have their blinds open or the curtains open and not feel as though they're being looked at in their bedroom and so you know hit and miss brickwork's a beautiful way of achieving a screening that doesn't cut off light it actually creates a beautiful dappled light internally but achieves that sense of privacy from the street for the occupant of the house. 
And is it expected now for your projects that there's a high chance that you'll be using bricks or is it something that you have to convince clients? I think that sometimes, unfortunately, it takes a bit of convincing, particularly on the multi-residential projects, because it can be seen as more expensive, which is not necessarily the case, but that is sometimes the perception just in terms of construction methodologies. Mm -hmm. But it also is a finished material, which we always tell our clients. So, you know, you have to look at it holistically in terms of, yes, it might take longer to lay a brick, but then you don't need to to have any finishing trade across it, which is always nice. And just talking about construction time, just with Napier Street, how long did that take? It took a little bit longer than expected. I believe it was 18 months in the end. <laughs> and was how far over was that? I think it was six months over. Yeah. That's, that's really not too bad. No, it wasn't. It wasn't extreme. There's a lot of detail in that building. There um, is. It's beautifully finished and appointed. Thank you. I know even the jury was saying that they just loved just sort of the little things, a lot of the, the letterboxes and the labels, they all, they just, I think it just complements the brick so, so well. And, and even though it seems so simple, it's so elegant. Yeah, that's what we try to do, I think, is just have key moments that really elevate what could otherwise be quite an, an ordinary task, like a mailbox, but it just creates a sense of address, it creates the sequence, creates the unveiling and the expectation of what's beyond. And I think that's part of what Freedom White typically try to do is that you don't have to be lavish across a whole building. You just have to be lavish in key moments that really enhances the project as a whole. That's a beautiful way to describe it. Have you noticed any changes in the evolution of brick over your experience with it? Absolutely. I think there's a, there's a lot of new technologies and, and new ways of understanding how bricks can be used. And I just remember seeing, you know, university studies about, you know, how much can a brick cantilever? And now there's all these systems about, you know, how you can put a brick to the suffete of a, of a building or all these types of developments in the industry that allow us to be as creative as we possibly can. It's, it's great to see. <laughs> and look, we talked about, you've obviously, you've been one of our most successful architectural participants in the awards. I think you've nearly achieved a um, commendation for every single project and you've won twice. Could you just describe a little bit about the awards and how they've impacted what you do? So the Think Brick Awards are an amazing opportunity for architects. And we, as we said, we love brick because of its durability. We're just so thankful for Think Brick to be an amazing advocate for good design and to our practice and promoting the work that we've been able to achieve with the use of such an amazing material such as brick. So, Alana, we're now just going through the quick fire round. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Online, terrible. Handwriting or typing? Typing, I'm a terrible architect. <laughs> For sketching ideas or concepts, 
would you use a pen, pencil, or an e-pen? More recently, the e-pen over over images is great. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Read books. What's important to you, style or substance? Substance. For sure. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Oh, coffee is a necessity, isn't it? <laughs> With children it is. <laughs> TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or brand new? Oh, can I go in the middle? Mid-century? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Call or text? Call, definitely. Travel back in time or into the future? Oh, back in time for sure. Exterior or interior? Both. You can say both. <laughs> Video games or board games? Board games. Form or function? Function. With relation to design, complex or simple? Uh, complexity that's hidden in a simple outcome. It's beautiful. I agree. <laughs> Alana, thank you so much. It's been fascinating speaking to you. And I've, <laughs> I, I've not only learned so much, but I've really appreciated the journey that you've taken with Brick and it's been absolutely stunning to witness it and Thank I you. hope that we continue to do so and I know you've got a few projects in the works using we Brick, do so. we do we do so thank you very yeah. much for your time today thank you and thank you so much for having me Elizabeth and it's been great chatting thanks thanks